Hello and welcome to the TCT Podcast. I'm Head of Content Daniel O'Connor and in today's episode we're in conversation with the latest inductee to the TCT Hall of Fame. On the 26th of September at the TCT Awards, three more people will join the illustrious crowd that is Chuck Hull, Scott Crump, Hans Langer, Adrian Bowyer and Fried van Kram. Preceding the gala dinner will be three in-depth conversations with the inductees who were nominated in by their peers and then voted for by the general public. Our second inductee for 2018 is process pioneer and application specialist Greg Morris. Morris Technologies, established by Greg in 1994, became one of the leading providers of specialist AM services in the US before being bought, along with sister company Rapid Quality Manufacturing, by GE Aviation in 2012. Greg's work in developing metal AM processes and applications has driven the adoption of these technologies, and his involvement in the speaking circuit and positions at educational and research organisations has distributed this knowledge industry-wide. Here, Greg picks up the story of how he first came into contact with 3D printing. I grew up along with my brother um, in a family business in the steel distribution industry. Um, When I graduated from uh, college in 1988, I went right into the family business. Um, I was sixth generation coming into that, so it had been founded in 1850 in Cincinnati, so a very long um, history there. We... uh, we basically, uh, my, my father was the uh, um, president of the company and, and a majority owner, and so uh, we were going through some difficult times, as the steel industry often does, very cyclical, and we ended up selling the business in 1991 to a regional distribution center. I stayed with that company for three years in outside sales, and during that time, uh, one of the customers I was calling on um, was a company in northern Kentucky. And the uh, one of the young engineers there was a friend of my brother's from high school, and uh, his name was Bill Nowak. And uh, so eventually Bill and my brother Wendell and I talked about starting our own business again. And so we started looking at different business models, and this was in 1993. And one of the things that we looked at was uh, rapid prototyping, as it was known back then. So we explored the SLS and the SLA technologies and eventually uh, bought a used SLA 250 and opened up for business with uh, essentially a couple of seats of SDRC Ideas software, a couple really expensive uh, SGI um, computers, and uh, one used SLA 250, and that was in September of 94. And and really that was our first entry into uh, additive as we know it today, and uh, actually, ironically, I think one of our very first, if not our first customer that we produced parts for was GE Aviation. Um, They had their own technology um, and and their own SLA machines, but they still had overflow, and so uh, being local in their market, we were uh, able to uh, sell some of our parts to them. So that was kind of the very beginning, if you will, is in that 93-94 time period. And that was uh, Morris Technologies and Rapid Quality Manufacturing. And- well, Morris Technologies originally. We didn't form Rapid Quality Manufacturing until uh, 2007. Um, so once we got involved in the additive metals, which was in 2003, um, that 
and we started to see and, and you know, we didn't know, but we, we had a pretty good feeling and we, we certainly were very hopeful that the metals would be um, uh, prove out to be very enabling with the mechanical properties of the materials and all of that stuff. So in 07, we created RQM. Um, predominantly to focus on the production um, applications, not the prototyping and low volume. So when um, when you first started Morris Technologies, what kind of parts and were you working on for any customers, not just GE? Was it just prototyping parts specifically? I know that you said it was a rapid prototyping service, but did you ever foresee end-use applications coming out of that? Yeah, it was all prototype parts, really, at that time. And, again, you'll have to, you know, when you go back to that era, the, the, the materials weren't great. Um, but they had gotten better from the ac acrylate resins that originally had started. And so the epoxy resins were just coming out, which were a lot better, but still nowhere near functionality um, on many, many fronts. So, yeah, our, our stuff that we did was really all prototyping. You know, it's, it's one of those tough things where, I, you know, I think, it was so early in with the industry, it's it's difficult for me to say today that back then we thought, yeah, you, you can absolutely see this becoming production parts. I don't think we really necessarily thought that would, would happen anytime soon, if at all. Um, of course, as it turns out, as the materials got better, I mean, I, I think we almost we, – we could look at the technology and say 10 years, 20 years from now, maybe the materials will be at a point where they're functional and then and, – and the speeds of the uh, machines will pick up. Um, maybe it's possible that it could produce production parts. But a lot of the stuff we were doing was basically prototypes that would eventually become injection molded parts. So, you know, comparing to injection molding, it was a pretty big gulf. Uh, to imagine that additive could compete with injection molding um, back at that time. Now, obviously, where additive really plays is where it creates geometry that you wouldn't be able to create uh, by injection molding. And, and, and I think that was too early in for us to have that vision. Um, so we, we didn't have the, the vision to say this was going to be a production technology. Um, when we started messing around with the metals, I think we then started to see, and, and because we saw them being very functional and the industry had matured and had a lot more time to start to say, I can see where these specific geometries might be a good fit for a production application. And it was, according to my research here, 2003 when you first got your first metals machine. Can you just talk me through about what it was that made you decide to invest in the machine and what it was like as um, a company bringing a metals machine in, I would imagine there was a, a huge change in the, you know, the, the processes that you have to go through. Yeah, so um, we, we became aware of the EOS, uh, direct metal laser centering technology, when I was making a, uh, I'll call it a, a management or a sales call, whatever you want to call it, to one of our customers in Cincinnati, which was Procter & Gamble. So P&G had a lab um, not far, about, you know, 10 minutes away from us, and I was, and we staffed their lab. So meaning a company like a P&G typically hires engineers and technicians and, and, and for positions that are uh, not necessarily um, a machine operator positions. So we staffed people that ran the additive machines that they had. So I was over there um, talking to the guy who, worked for P&G, who was in charge of that area, just 
uh, chatting with him about how are we doing, how are things, et cetera. And he said, oh, things are great, but let me show you something. He goes, I, I got these mold inserts from our facility over in the U.K. And he went to his office and brought back these metal uh, mold inserts. And I was really impressed by the detail resolution. And at that time, uh, this was 2002, uh, at that time, you know, the, to get direct to metal, there were technologies. I think it was called Keltool, and then there was the SLS method. All of them not very functional, not very practical. And uh, the detail resolution was never quite as good. And there are all kinds of problems trying to make rapid mold inserts. So when I saw what he had, I said, well, that's pretty amazing detail, uh, the parts that he showed me. I said, what, uh, you know, what machine did this come off of? And he explained it to me. And so, uh, you know, I went back to the office and I got with uh, my partners, my brother Wendell and, and Bill Nowak, and uh, I said, hey, guys, we need to explore this technology. I mean, this what I saw is pretty phenomenal, great detail resolution. And so they agreed, and we, uh, Bill went over to Germany and met with EOS, and uh, when he came back and had his report of what he had seen and other companies he had talked to, we decided to invest in the direct metal laser centering technology. So in 03, we brought over to North America the first DMLS machine, and uh, frankly, we thought we would make a lot of mold inserts um, and, and be making quick mold, uh, injection molding tools, and maybe make a few direct parts. And of course, uh, as history has proven, the uh, complete opposite happened. Uh, we were making a lot of direct parts for people that had interest in it, GE being a primary one, um, and we made almost no, no mold inserts, which is kind of ironic. Um, the other irony is that uh, Procter & Gamble, I don't think, ever used us for making any metal parts <laughs> during the time we were in business, but but they were the catalyst that uh, made us aware of the technology. So uh, after the first 250 and 250 we had, um, yeah, we had moderate success with it. The materials weren't great. Uh, you know, it, it was uh, the direct metal materials and, and the uh, direct steel and direct steel H20. So we had a lot of problems, but still, it was much better than anything else out there. And then, um, you know, as I said, we were selling parts to GE Aviation, and they kept really – they kept asking us for a better material because the bronze-based alloy had issues. The steels would corrode and didn't have as good a strength and stress crack. So we kept going back to EOS and saying, hey, we need a, a super alloy, you know, something like a nickel-based alloy. And they finally told us that they had been – working with some medical customers, dental customers, uh, with an alloy called cobalt chrome. And so we said, all right, well, you know, that sounds better than what we have. Can we have the cobalt chrome? And they said, well, it's going to take, A, a, a different machine with a fiber laser versus your CO2 laser. So it would take the next generation machine. And, B, you know, we're not sure we want to – it's still beta. It's still in pilot. So we said um, – we, we told them, all right, well, we'll buy another machine then, uh, even though we weren't particularly happy about it. But we said, we'll buy, you know, the M270 that it requires, and uh, we really uh, will sign whatever agreement you want us to sign, recognizing it's in beta or in pilot. And so uh, that's what ended up happening. We, we ended up getting our hands on Cobalt Chrome with our new M270, and really that's when things started taking off. Be, you know, with about a year later or so, because uh, we found the alloy easy to process and it was 
really, truly the first super alloy. I mean, it had great strength, great mechanical properties, corrosion resistance, uh, all the things that uh, GE was looking for and a lot of other customers were looking for. So the, the next thing was we, we ended up buying two more machines, giving us a total of four, um, and, and that's when things really started to take off as well. And, and, of course, EOS and everybody else was scratching their heads going, why are these guys buying two more machines, giving them a total of four, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So m- once we had four, I think we actually, at that time period, were, that was like 05, we were probably the largest, <laughs> and looking back, it's funny, but we were probably the largest um, concentration of metal additive machines in the world at that point. And, uh, of course, we kept adding to that cap- uh, capability to the point that when we sold to GE Aviation, I think we had 21 metal machines at the time, which, again, was still at that point the, the largest concentration. But the key factor is cobalt chrome, the material, coupled with the things that we learned and, and we developed a lot of intellectual property and trade secrets about how to run the technology and how to work with it and all the, the pre-processing, the post-processing, um, really transformed our business. I mean, we, we went from being a generalist as a, as an additive company to, uh, really focused on the metals, not exclusively, but obviously a lot of our investment and, and focus became, um, centered around additive metals. And that's ultimately what we became pretty well known for. Um, so we, we backed it up with post, thermal treatments, post-CNC uh, machining in-house. Uh, we, we had a pretty comprehensive and broad capability internally working with the metals. And in those early days when GE first started to uh, use the, your metal technology, what was the, how was the design for additive idea? You know, because we talk about power consolidation and, um, you know, lightweighting, topological optimization. At what stage were the engineers when you were getting parts? How much more did you need to do, and how much more have how what have they done? Yeah, you know, it was pretty painful back then <laughs> because I think nobody knew how to design to the process. I mean, we didn't either. I we yeah you know, we I I fondly look back and I laugh about it, but it, it wasn't really that funny at the time. But we had a fairly large wooden crate. Um, that one of our guys uh, termed the the uh, the box of broken dreams, which was where we threw all our scrap um, builds that didn't work well, um, you know, that that, that uh, failed in the build for one reason or another. And many of those reasons, not all, but many of them were due to the geometries we were trying to build just weren't optimal for building and, and metals. So to answer your question, initially GE, there were really only two people two engineers at GE when we first started working with them on the metals that started uh, that, that worked with us, meaning they would buy um, additive metal components from us for their projects. One was in what they called the test facilities engineering group, and the other engineer was in the uh, combustion uh, engineering group. And, of course, the combustion engineering group's parts led ultimately to the, the famous fuel nozzle. But there were just two pioneers, and, and – to their credit, those two engineers, uh, since retired from GE, they stuck with the problems because they recognized the potential uh, of the technology. And, and their vision, frankly, their sticking with things, even though there were issues, led to more and more engineers finding out about uh, the ability to get parts and get them quickly. 
So initially, what I would tell you is we learned a lot about how to design the process, but getting customers to change their design thinking is exceedingly difficult. So it would take time for them to come around to that. Initially, they would basically say, here's the part that I normally design that I get cast or I machine or I fabricate, make it an additive. And so that's how we started, basically, and how we learned a lot. Again, with a lot of crash builds and a lot of scrap parts that we ended up pay, you know, taking it and having to pay for, um, but that was really how things started out. And until you know, enough years went by and enough time went by where, where we were able to talk to the engineers and designers and tell them, look, you know, instead of having this sharp radius here or corner, you need to make it a, a, a smoother radius or something of that you know, whatever whatever the design requirement would be. Um, don't do thick to thin, try to even it out. And, and that was just to get parts to build better. The epiphany of how to design parts so that they are better functionally didn't happen until, you know, another couple, three years after that. So th this was not an overnight process. I mean, this took a lot of time, um, initially starting with what they knew how to design to, and it took years for the engineers and designers to, to fully understand the benefits and the limitations of additive so that they started to design from an optimal standpoint, um, which is now what you start to see. You start to see the combination of multiple parts into one, um, all that built on years of, of knowledge that happens slowly as I look back, but never, nevertheless still happened. And you touched on it there. If we can go to the fuel nozzle now, what, when did it become apparent to you that the additive manufacturing was going to be suitable for the series production of it, not just the one part here, two parts there? When did it become apparent, and how exciting was that that you were going to be the first series production part? So GE held some of those cars close to their chest. I mean, we were their primary supplier of the prototype parts, and again, they you know they used additive metals. Um, a lot, even if it was the same geometry that they would have cast, they used it because it was faster. I mean, we could turn the parts around much faster than they could go get tooling made to cast parts. So they kind of held some of that where they were taking the fuel nozzle um, a little bit close to the chest, although we, we suspected in 2010, 2011 timeframe um, that they were probably going to be moving toward using additive uh, to produce the fuel nozzle. And, and really, it's the, the tip of the fuel nozzle. But um, we didn't have a full view of that, of course, until they acquired us. But we had a pretty good idea that uh, they were going to be using the technology, uh, if not exclusively as one of their methodologies to produce the uh, fuel tips in production around the 2010-2011 timeframe. So obviously, once we knew for sure that that's what they were doing, uh, that was a pretty big deal, and it really validated the technology on so many different levels. So when GE finally did start publicly allowing everybody to publicly talk about it um, with restrictions, but, you know, that happened after we were acquired, you know, it was big news. It was huge news. Huge news they acquired us, and the reason they acquired us to protect their supply chain for the fuel tips. And I think what that instantly did is it said, hey, this this technology, um, it's had, quote, unquote, real-world applications, and you know, up to this point, and dental and some medical and, 
and, and tooling applications. But this is kind of the major first step where we're seeing the technology placed into the heart of an engine in an extremely, um, you know, corrosive and, and uh, uh, really uh, high application environment. And uh, where a company like GE is going to bet the farm that they can make this work and, and it's going to uh, – because they have no backup plan. And it's going to be the way they make their leak engine uh, field tips. So that was a pretty gutsy move on GE's part, I have to say. I mean, they, they were very – they're surprisingly, as big as they are, they're an entrepreneurial company in that way. Took a big swing. I mean, they, they certainly did a lot of testing to verify the – mechanical properties were going to work, and they had to overcome a variety of obstacles on that journey. But, you know, they're a very technically savvy company, and, and uh, they saw that this was the, the way to go, and they took that leap. And um, really, I think it, it, it set the, the metals part of the additive industry on a course that it's never looked back ever since really that sort of period of time happened. Not just GE, but others uh, as well. But GE, in large part, I think, really set the course for how far you can use these uh, technologies for production components. I started at TGT in 2013, and my first ever conversation with anybody outside of these walls was with a uh, company called Encodema, who are a service bureau based in the States. And they said to me that they were looking at investing into a metals machine now because basically... GE had, once GE had acquired Morris Technologies, it was like wiping out about 50% of the capacity of metals in the US. There must have been an added benefit outside of GE that this, it not only validated the market, but all of a sudden there were people realizing that, you know, we need to buy these machines and bring them in. I mean, because from that point on, metals haven't really looked back. Would you agree with that or? No, no, no. You're absolutely correct. I, I would totally agree. I think for, you know, fortunate for us, I mean, we, we were, as Morris Technologies and Rapid Quality Manufacturer, we were kind of playing a playing it both ways. We wanted to get the word out to our customers how beneficial using additive metals would be for them. But at the same time, we didn't want to stir up a bunch of competition. Um, but as it turns out, uh, you know, we had enough years to, to really uh, – you know, as a pioneer, you, you take a lot of errors in the back, and, and it's kind of painful sometimes. But we had enough years without there being other people jumping in that we had a really big head start on anybody else. I mean, again, as I said, we had a comprehensive capability on the front end uh, relative to design and engineering and know-how uh, regarding how to use the technologies. We had the most machines. We had a huge back end with machining and inspection capabilities and and, uh, you know, we just – we had a lot of things figured out that anybody else jumping in would take years to learn. Um, and we did. We had a, probably a, a good half the, the capacity in the country, if not the world, um, in additive metals at that time, which sounds grandiose, but, you know, it was a very small little teeny amount of business in the grand scheme of things. But still, when GE bought us, you're absolutely – they're right. I mean – Overnight, for a lot of our customers outside of GE, they lost their supplier. They, there wasn't anybody else. Um, overnight, the capacity went from the market. Overnight, all these people realized, holy cow, if GE is buying somebody for this technology, this, this stuff must be pretty good. And, and that's exactly what happened. I mean, other companies got bought. Um, you know, the, the EOS and Concept Lasers and SLMs of the world, the Renishaws, you know, their order books just started piling up 
um, and accelerating. And to this day, I think, you know, there are people still buying the, their machines, uh, you know, as if they're going out of style. So, I mean, it's really, uh, it's it's been an amazing transformation um, from November 16, 2012 going forward. I think in our little teeny industry, it's been a lot of shockwaves that said this technology is validated and uh, this is going to be the way a lot of things get made in the future. And a lot is relative. I mean, a lot compared to where we had been. Uh, obviously, a fraction of a percent of all things that get produced in metal. So, uh, you know, it's appropriate to use it for, for many applications, but the vast majority of metal applications like stampings and castings and forgings and machining, you know, all that stuff is obviously not going away. It's going to be the way to make most components. But additive for high-value uh, type components uh, where the designs are complex is – I think we're just – we're on the tip of the iceberg, and we're going to see a lot more of those applications come out. Uh, in uh, at your keynote speech at TCT show in 2013, you said that one day you expect that we will take out up to uh, between 500 and 1,000 pounds out of the weight of a jet engine. Have we gone any further towards that in the past four years, five years? Um, yeah, uh, quite a bit further. And and I still would suggest that I, you know, I think we will take out a fair amount of weight. Um, weight, but also, um, you know, just part consolidation and, and, and taking out costs and providing more efficiency and fuel efficiency. Weight's an element of it. Um, but when you're... When you're able to combine 300 different pieces that were fabricated and cast and forged and, and machined, and now you grow it as one part, uh, the the disruptions to the supply chain are just immense. I mean, from the very beginning of design, where you might have had 60 or so engineers uh, designing those 300 parts and detailing out the prints and all the inspection criteria, et cetera, you, you know, you might now have six guys involved in making that one part. And then the supply chain gets dramatically flattened from where you would have had, say, 50 or 60 suppliers making all those parts and all the shipping of those parts having to come together to one location to be assembled, you, you eliminate all that. So, so yeah, you might take weight out um, at the same time, which is good, but more importantly, you've taken immense amount of cost out. And, and that's really the, the story is that for the components that additive – is making its way into um, on aircraft engines and other other things outside of aviation or whatever, you're going to find that the supply chains are affected dramatically. The costs are probably going to be reduced. You might see a performance benefit um, in, in whatever that additive part's going into. And most assuredly, you're going to see a more elegant design. And elegant designs typically will circle back to using less material or maybe being less weight than what the traditional manufacturer component was. And again, not always the case, but I think that's a lot of what we started to see. But for sure, I mean, we started on LEAF, and the field tip was the only component on the LEAF engine. Um, there's 18 or 19 of those in every engine, depending on the engine model, but uh, just the field tip among 10,000-plus parts. Now on the uh, the um, GE Catalyst engine, um, you know, there's a number of parts, I think 12 different geometries that are sitting on that engine. And by weight, the additive parts make up about 35% of the Catalyst engine. Now, I don't know how much weight that 
replaced, but it, it clearly took out a lot of weight from that one engine. Uh, the catalyst, by the way, is the uh, advanced turboprop engine that, that GE has putting on the Cessna Denali. And then um, the GE 9X engine, um, which is currently in all its uh, flight trials, uh, has a number of components beyond just fuel tips. So, you know, you're looking at the low-pressure turbine blades and a variety of other items. So clearly, additive is making its way into more components of the engines um, as more and more designers within GE and other aviation companies begin to leverage the technology, not just for prototyping and, and more efficient design, um, or, or a turnaround of designs, but also uh, as they start to utilize it for the actual production components. Do you think because it's a company like GE and because it's an industry like aviation that those all of the qualification and documentation that surrounds those parts that are needed because it's aerospace manufacturing, do you think that will eventually start to trickle down where people are just trust the technologies because they work on the, in the aerospace? Well, I think, yeah, no doubt. I mean, the Industries like aviation and companies like GE have, as, as in their own way, pioneering the use of the technology, clearly have had to spend millions of dollars in, in testing and qualification. Um, I think what will happen is, yes, there's a trickle-down effect where eventually uh, some people won't need – first off, they won't need that level of, of scrutiny on their parts, so they'll be able to get away with less um, – rigor on on the qualification of the parts but i think the more time goes on the more data gets published the more uh, confidence gets built up that the parts haven't just fallen apart when they've been used in a production environment etc i mean uh, companies are still going to have to go through their normal quality checks and feel sure that the product they're producing um, is going to meet whatever it is it needs to meet um, you know the medical guys putting implants into the body i mean those, those guys go through an equal but different type of testing uh, to make sure that they're not going to have a problem. So uh, those are two industries that are pretty highly regulated and, and require a fair amount of, uh, uh, you know, testing and, and assurances. But I think there are going to be many, many industries that take it on faith to some degree, but also will leverage and utilize the data that's increasingly becoming more common to find or to acquire at a fraction of the cost that it's taking the GEs of the world to develop. Yeah, I, I was at um, BMW's additive manufacturing centre a couple of months back, and what I was astounded to see was the amount of time that they have to put into uh, one of their metals machines to ensure that it's qualified. I mean, they do it with their polymer-based machines as well. Uh, was it a, is it a similar process at GE? Uh, I imagine at Morris Technologies you kind of knew the process, but does each machine have to go through this uh, whole qualification process, or do we will we get to a point where the machines are just ready to go? So, again, I think it's going to depend on the industry and on the company. So the BMWs and the GEs of the world, uh, indeed, go through a very um, extensive qualification process for any new machine, especially those that might be considered a special process. Um, they, they go through a very rigorous amount of uh, testing of the machine to ensure that it, the product it's going to produce is going to be, uh, you know, to the baseline or better that they've already established. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, and, I, and I, I'm not sure. It, I would say in part it probably has to do with the maturity of the industry and the manufacturers making the machines. Uh, they're clearly 
you know, getting there, but they're not quite at the level of somebody that's, you know, making CNC machine tools, let's say. But even a CNC machine tool uh, would need to go through probably a similar qualification process at a GE or a BMW as an additive machine does. Maybe not as many things have to be done, but it still would have to go through the same process. So said differently, a GE or a BMW is not going to just take it on faith when they buy a machine that it's going to produce um, what they need. They have to test it. And in the case of GE, uh, it used to be like a four-month period uh, of, of testing of any new machine that they would buy, uh, an additive machine they would buy, um, before they were able to produce flight-worthy hardware. And, and by the way, once you've identified and, and made sure that the machine is able to produce flight-worthy hardware, if you picked that machine up and moved it to a different spot on the plant floor, you'd have to repeat all of that um, that testing. And it's just basically so you eliminate all the potential uh, modes of failure for uh, a part. And it's it's certainly not for the faint of heart. Um, you know, we at Morris Technologies, frankly, we didn't know to have to do all those things. Most service providers don't. And uh, that's part of the game. If you're going to be producing production components for a GE in the future or a BMW, you're going to have to demonstrate to the OEM that you have your process under control, you have your uh, machine certified to the baseline data, um, and you have to follow very strict uh, requirements in order to produce parts that they're going to deem are quality enough. You're the first um, inductee into the TCT Hall of Fame who I would consider an applications-based engineer. The people that we've had previously are uh, the OEM inventors and uh, like Fried van Kran who's into the software. Do, can, do you think that we've got to a point now where we need more people who are applying the technologies into whatever sector it is, whether it's medical, whether it's aviation, whether it's aerospace? Look, I think I think it's growing exponentially. Um, and by that I mean if I look back to just say when GE acquired us in 2012, so a little over five years ago, there were a handful, I probably count on my one hand, the number of people, engineers and designers at GE that really understood and leveraged and used additive metals in that, um, for, for their designs. Flash forward to today, and now you've got hundreds, if not thousands, of engineers and designers, not just in GE Aviation, but across their other businesses, healthcare and, and power, et cetera. So you've got this groundswell of interest from hundreds and thousands of engineers and designers that uh, throughout the GE Corporation around the world have started to understand how to design to additive, have come up with billions of dollars of cost-out opportunities within the corporation leveraging additives. So this this momentum is like a snowball going downhill. I mean, it's starting to, to get very big, and, and yeah, we're starting to see um, many, many engineers and designers across all kinds of different industries, startups to the major corporations, think about additive and how it can be a differentiator for their products. And I, I would almost say at this point that if companies aren't looking at additive um, and additive metals if they make those kind of parts um, as a way to create a competitive advantage, then they're probably going to get left behind if they're not actively doing something with it. 
that was a conversation with the always interesting Greg Morris, a worthy inductee to the TCT Hall of Fame. Join us next week to find out who's made the final cut. Thanks to our partners Innovate UK and thanks to you for downloading and listening. Until next time. Thank you.